Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis. I'm a marriage and family therapist and licensed professional counselor trained in trauma and addiction. The Asking Why podcast is for anyone on a journey of healing and restoration. If you are searching for answers to life's questions and want to learn more about root causes from a psychological and theological mix, this show is for you. In this podcast, myself and a co-host from Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness will interview guests on a wide range of topics in order to get down to the heart of the problems facing our world and understand why things happen and how to change the world and ourselves for the better. Want to learn more tips and tricks to living a healthy lifestyle? Visit us at Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to meet our staff or book a speaker, go to clintdaviscounseling.com. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe today. Putman Restoration is a proud sponsor of the Asking Why podcast. Putman Restoration specializes in commercial disaster services, including water damage, fire, smoke, mold, and storm. Their goal and desire is to get your properties up and running as soon as possible after disaster strikes. Hospitals, schools, hotels, and large municipal buildings, malls, churches, and large commercial properties are their specialty. Manage properties nationwide? No problem. Putman Restoration services their clients nationwide. They are strategically partnered with elite restoration companies throughout the U.S. and Canada, giving their clients resources during disasters where normal companies would be tapped out. Trust the professionals at Putman Restoration when disaster strikes. Visit them online at www.putmanrestoration.com or give them a call at 318-453-5029. All right, welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis, and we are on episode 76. And I have Dr. Stephanie Karenia here to talk about some family trauma, um, codependency, uh, mother wounds. I've been following you, Dr. Karenia, on social media. Love your post. I've learned a ton. You know, you do such a great job of, um, of making complex, you know, topics and subjects, you know, uh, really concise and able for the average person to kind of read it and take it in. And, and so I reached out to you and asked you to come on. And I was very thankful that you took the time to to come on here and and teach us some things and have some conversations. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, so tell me kind of who you are, what, what's your background, what's your degree in? Um, let us know that stuff. So I'm based in the Netherlands and I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I have been practicing for a couple of years now and I started off working in addiction and I remember working in a clinic and I was, and I was just seeing the, the wounds that these clients of mine had. And then I was reading into family dynamics and I realized, wow, what, what many of those people have experienced, uh, the, you know, for instance, the black sheep of the family dynamics or the, the even the golden child and, uh, how this has impacted them, mm. um, and yeah, how they got stuck as a result. So I got really motivated to um, get into that and to help them out of it. And I often heard that I was able to explain it really well. That was helpful. So I decided to to spread the message on a larger yeah, scale. So then I started posting on Instagram and now I'm here with you. Yeah, it's awesome. So what got you into, so are you a clinical psychologist? Is that what you're, yes. okay, awesome. So tell people what that means. Okay. As a clinical psychologist, um, you know about general mental health care, the diagnosis of people, what, and that's my specialty, trauma and personality, what drives people to behave the way they behave so we can understand what the problem might be, how they're stuck, and how to get them unstuck. 
Yeah, that's awesome. And so what led, what led you, are you from the Netherlands originally? What kind of, tell me your story, what led you into clinical psychology? Um, actually, um, I'm, I'm just, I was always just really fascinated about human behavior. At some point I thought about um, studying psychology and then I, I, I didn't. I um, started to study uh, law. Oh, but yeah? I hated it. After half a year, I stopped, <laughs> and then um, and then I, I decided to study psychology because I was fascinated about the, the human behavior. Why do we behave the way we behave? Um, yeah, so it was a very good, very good step. That's funny. And of course, um, sorry. Oh, what was what about law? Kind of made you bail on that. <laughs> um, there was not much about the unconscious motives of people, yeah. <laughs> which I was interested in. Yeah, yeah. I mean that, you know, that's, that's so beautiful because, you know, we do a lot of personal injury work. I don't know if you ever do anything where you have to go to court or deal with any kind of court cases, but it is such a, uh, a direct conflict with what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, everything is black and white. Everything is, you know, yes. and even, but even I think the thing that frustrates me and, and I've have several friends who are lawyers, and we'll talk about the same thing that, you know, what you learn in law school or what you learn in grad school is not how you actually apply it. And so it's like you think it's going to be black and white, but it's really subjected to the judge and the other lawyer and the and the jury. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I have a hard time when I have to go to trial, like because I'm always in the gray. You know, we work in the gray and and they want to try to put it in a box. And it's it's very complicated. True. On the other hand, though, what is interesting is normally when we are able to, you know, mentalize properly, think properly, analyze situations, uh, you know, um, in our daily lives, we need to be uh, in touch with reality as much as possible because our suffering is caused by lack of, of not being living in the truth. Yeah. So, and some people think tend to think black and white. Well, actually, it's so important to be able to get all the evidence, you know, around you to be able to make. Uh, the right conclusions based on truth. Yeah, no, you're, you're hundred percent right. I think it's interesting working in the therapy field is, you know, um, getting people to, you know, use that right and that left brain and the prefrontal and the brainstem and, and get to the truth through relationship and through feeling safe and from, you know, downregulating and, and all those kind of things. And, um, I think the, the struggle with the law is you're, you're kind of your, your butts on the line, uh, to get in trouble or to lose a lawsuit or to get money, you know? And so it's, everybody's in fight or flight. And so it's really hard to get to the truth when you've got everybody so dysregulated. Yep. So I, I, I could see that being really hard for us wanting to connect with people and, and, and downregulate people to be in a job where we're constantly in a, in a state of, you know, panic. <laughs> Okay. Well, that's awesome. So, okay. So you specialize in family trauma and stuff. And, and I'm going to, like we talked about before we got on here, I'm going to go over some of that. So, um, why is family trauma specifically kind of so important to you? Um, and, and how do you work with clients around that? Yeah, great question. So why is childhood so important, right? Why do people so much focus so much on childhood? So in the, in our childhood, um, I our wish people did. I, you know what I mean? Like to us it is right. And I think that's the interesting thing about the average person listening is would you, I, I'll ask you in a question. Do you think the average person actually even connects that their childhood has a huge impact to their current or are they just kind of in the current? I think many people know uh, theoretically that the childhood, childhood has a large impact, 
but many people believe that there there was nothing wrong with their childhood yeah. because they weren't beaten or even worse i've heard people that were beaten but still believe that they had a generally good childhood yeah they weren't beaten so, as bad as someone else right exactly yeah so and that's why i'm posting a lot on hidden hidden trauma i call it it's, yeah. it's not official trauma but it's on the the emotional injuries that cause and then i can ans- answer your question why is childhood so important is because we need to identify these emotional injuries because it will cause it will create uh, how we will view the world and how we will interact with the world around us so that's when people become for instance quite um, distrustful of other people or uh, feel easily personally attacked uh, or feel easily abandoned and um, yeah so they don't get to mature fully they Mm -hmm. don't get to be able to um, use their psychological functions properly they are not really living in reality so they get stuck they they don't have a high quality of relationships if they have uh, healthy relationships yeah that's good. Yeah. And that's all that family trauma stuff, right? It's, it's all this unconscious things that, that aren't the glaring red flags that let's say we see in a movie or in, you know, in some other, you know, scenario or in a book that's like, blam, 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 here's the problem. It's all these unconscional, unconscious responses to why does every boss that I have bring up this thing in me? Or why does every, you know, female that I interact with have this response to me or, and it's like, man, all of that comes from our mother and our father and, and the way we view things that are so ingrained. And and, yeah. and yeah, we tend to right, blame the other person or blame the other situation instead of taking some account for ourselves and going, how do I keep getting into these same situations over and over? I know I've been guilty yeah. of that myself. But that's very interesting that you're pointing this out because what you're now describing is the ability to self-reflect at least. Yeah, you are able to pinpoint, hey, this is hap- this is reoccurring and this is with specific in specific situations. So this might be me, not them. That's right. And that allows you to self-examine. But many people don't have haven't had the emotional safety, it's emotional security as a child to be able to develop the self-reflective mechanism. So they will react. They will just say that job sucked, that boss sucked. They suck. The world sucks. <laughs> yep. And they won't um, be able to figure out that perhaps that's their wound being triggered. And if they're able to heal that, they won't be triggered that much anymore and they will not get stuck that much. Yeah. And that's why we do what we do, right? It's, it's such a joy and so difficult because people don't realize, you know, and if you're listening to this, you know, we, and, and this is ringing true, part of therapy, part of getting into counseling, part of doing clinical psychology is having that safe space to feel safe enough to work out some of those things and challenge some of those things so that you can start to have introspection so that you can start to have insight. Um, but again, you're not going to do that until you find safety until your body regulates until your nervous system, you know, can be under control. And, and, you know, I think our culture's done a lot to shame people and go, God, you just have these bad habits or you have these negative things or you do all these things instead of seeing them as, as we're talking about as, as things that help them survive their whole life. And mm. that, um, and that shame, it continues to make them internalize these things instead of externalize them and go, okay, that's not who I am. That's not my identity. That's, that's not, that's what I learned used to survive, but now I don't have to do that but I'm not going to jump from point A to point Z. I'm going to actually have to do some work in between and mess it up a little bit, you know, to get there. So that was, that was beautifully said. Yes. And very well said it. 
um, it wasn't me. It wasn't my fault as a child. I was never wrong because a child can never be wrong, can never be at fault. A child needs guidance. So I was never the problem as a, as a child, but I am responsible as an adult for how I deal with that, that damage. Mm -hmm. So I am responsible as an adult to mature and to um, be aware of the effect that my behavior has on others. That's good. Yeah, I always say we have to we have to allow people to sit in the victim seat for a time so they mm -hmm. can recognize that they were a victim and then we have mm -hmm. to help them move out of the victim seat so they start so they stop creating more victims in their life. And I think ah, we, that's beautiful. We want people to skip the step, you know. We want to be able to say, "Wait, hold on, you don't understand. So and so hurt me, my dad treated me this way and that's why I do this." Please justify mm -hmm. that, excuse that away. Please understand that's not me. But if someone else is doing something, it's like, oh no, you should be in self-control. You should know better. You shouldn't let your past affect you. It's way easier to put that on somebody else uh, than it is to do for ourselves. So, Yeah. And especially that, that part, the being in the victim seat, there is no point of uh, acknowledging what, what was done to you as a child when you don't take the next step. And that is to mourn the loss the mourn to mourn the loss of the unconditional acceptance of being cared for That's because so, only so pointing the finger mm -hmm. at least okay you're not pointing the finger to yourself that is good but then you need to go through the grieving process and only when you're able to fully do that then you have a space to be able to mature to start taking personal responsibility that's so good. I think part of uh, what I'm really starting to work with with people on now and, and have been is is um, that, you know, you can't when you accept that you become you've been a victim of something um, and you have to mourn it. That means you have to be in your body. You know, that means you have mm -hmm. to, you know, feel the feelings you have to heal the feelings you have. And if you don't sit and slow down and take the time to, to give yourself that space, then you can't downregulate your nervous system and you're not going to be able to mourn. You're going to be so dysregulated and disassociated. And, um, but man, it's such a beautiful space when people mourn and grieve. And, and again, those same people, myself included, have been taught our whole lives that having space for that, having feelings to mourn, crying is bad and wrong. And then here we are saying, Hey, this is the thing you need to do to heal. <laughs> People are like, yeah. no, I don't want to do that. That's that's inefficient. It's inefficient, yes. And in the past, it only led to problems, feelings, right? So they're like, are you crazy? What are you talking about? Or they are just, they have no clue how to get to my feelings. What, how do I, what, is there a to-do steps to do? How do you get there? <laughs> task, task oriented, right? Give me the list. Yes. Give me the task to fix this yes. problem. And it's like, yeah. oh man, that's the opposite of what you're going to have to do. And people, I mean, myself included, I've been in therapy for 20 something years. You know, it's like, oh, give me the list. Give me the check mark. Give me the thing to do. And, and you know, I can be proud of myself, but you want me to sit in this? You mm -hmm. want me to feel my feelings? Like, oh, that's the opposite of what I, I quote unquote want to do. And yeah. then you do it and you're like, oh, that's the thing I needed. I needed to yeah. just sit and cry in that. I needed to just mourn that. I needed to feel that. It's crazy. And I was, when I was working at the addiction center, I saw these groups, the group therapy, and I saw how, you know, for the first time in their lives, they were able to access their emotions and the vulnerability, you know, um, shame kills us and shame dies on exposure. That's so right. when they were able to, to really go to the shameful aspects, you know, they were avoiding eye contact when saying it. And at some point they were able to, and they were you know, able to go to feel their emotions 
and then they were able to also witness how people accepted them the way they were, then you have an emotional change from the inside and, and the shame dies. Yeah. So when you're in a safe community or in a safe environment or with a therapist or with a good friend, um, perhaps they can help you to get to the, these emotions because that's necessary in order to uh, process. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you know, for me, scripture says, uh, confess our sins to one another and then you'll be healed. And, um, you know, that sounds scary when you're confessing your sins to somebody that you're not in a relationship with, but when it's reciprocal, when it's somebody you trust, when it's close and there's a, there's a back and forth and an honesty about this is who I am and, and you love me anyway, man, that that's so healing. And, you know, I think we've been taught in our cultures, not just in religion, but in just general that, you know, we, we put our best foot forward. We put our best face forward. We put the mask on and we come and we present ourselves as all together and no one's going to love us. And what I find is that in my own life and with clients, when, when we, when we put that false self on and we come forward with, oh, I got it all together and I'm, I've done good today and we are in a group or in a relationship, what everybody really feels is insincerity because we're all sitting there knowing that we're all broken and all fallible and all, all, you know, messed up. But what we're communicating is, oh, I got it all together. And so then that limits anybody else exposing themselves. But when the opposite's true, when you turn it around, you have people in relationships in which you're like, hey, man, I really struggle with pornography. I really struggle with anger. I really struggle with, um, you know, selfishness. And the other person's like, me too. Now let's work on this together and let's get healthy. Then in the back of your head, you're not, you're not thinking to yourself, man, if they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. Because they do really know you and they love you anyway. And so I think people need to realize that the, now, again, don't do that with everybody, you know, do that with a, cl a clinician, you know, first, if you haven't nobody safe in your life or do that with the safe people in your life and learn to live a more authentic life. And that does bring what you were talking about. So I think we're right on the same page, which I love. Um, can you tell me a little bit about, so through that family trauma and we could talk about that for hours, but uh, I think codependency is a big one um, that I see in, in people. Can you talk about what is codependency and a lot of people say, Oh, you're being codependent, but what's it really mean clinically and what's that look like? Yeah. So codependency often what is referred to what I'm reading about is dependency. And that means, um, that's when we are dependent upon other people making decisions for us or helping us to make the decision for us. We generally, have a weak sense of self we and this isn't an interesting one we trust other people more and other people's opinion and judgment more than our own mm. so this can be also due to um so that can be just a general lack of self-confidence and being as a child being raised to be very focused on the parent or perhaps a, a dependent relationship with the parent where the parent needed the child to need them so they couldn't deal with a child becoming autonomous so oh, then you, that's you good. become a dependent child yes so this could be that i, I remember i remember someone who was actually uh, calling someone an adult and calling like uh, still their parents what should i do in my job what decisions shall i make should i do i do i need to take this task or that task and unfortunately that parent was giving answers and directing that child that adult child still wasn't able to uh, help the child become autonomous mm -hmm. so it's when we trust other people's judgment more than our own or um and so 
for instance, a very uh, counter-dependent type yep. with, yeah, or a in, very ind independent, not an interdependent, independent type would only trust themselves more than other people, while an interdependent person is able to trust other people as well as their themselves. Oh, that's good. Yeah. But often dependent people uh, might also struggle psychologically to trust their judge to really trust their judgments. So not only frightened to make the wrong mistake, but really are could could ask you like, is this real? Is this really happening? They mm -hmm. they struggle to make uh, the right judgments. So they might uh, outsource this to uh, some case of some cases, unfortunately, abusers. When you get yeah. into a trauma bond. Yeah. Can you tell tell a little bit about trauma bond? What is that? Yeah. So a trauma bond is, for instance, when you get a dependent relationship. And this could be with a, a, an abuser who needs, so both need each other. And in a, in, in a way, they both use each other. Mm -hmm. So I say, I, I posted on that once, so the trauma bonding is that the, the one person, the dependent person, needs the other person to manage them psychologically to help them with their judgment and everything and the abuser needs the victim in this case for instance to help them to maintain their ego yeah they always need to be right so the uh, dependent person will need to be feel that's another aspect of dependency they need to feel loved. They need, to, I need, they need to feel accepted because as a child, they didn't feel that. So they're still trying to get that healing fantasy being loved as the way as they would, should have been as a child yeah. from the abuser. So, and then in turn, they will always, they will agree with the abuser and lose themselves in the, in, in the meantime. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Yeah, I think I see that a lot in the trauma bond, a lot in uh, sexual addiction. You know, um, that's what we're talking about codependency. There's a lot in, in sex addicts and in addicts in general, alcoholics. A lot of codependency because there is that trauma bond. There's, there's. A it's not just that we're looking for it in in the thing we're using or the substance we're using or the person we're using. We're looking for it. I, I love how you said the fantasy, the fantasy of healing that that oh through this thing through this relationship I'll find what I've been looking for. When in reality we just repeat the same pattern because the other person's using us just as much as we're using them. Yeah. Exactly. So we will uh, use our partnership to repair our parent re relationship with our parents. So if you do that, and it's not necessarily unhealthy, but make sure to do that with someone who has the ability to help you heal, and not someone who doesn't have the inner safety to be able to love you instead of control you. That's, that's so good. That's such a great point. Because, you know, we, oh, somebody... I'll, I'll use it from a theological standpoint just because it's helpful to my listeners anyway. Maybe you can, it'll make sense to you. But, you know, God said that he made Adam and Eve um, in Genesis, and, it, and it's before, quote-unquote, sin enters into the world. So it's chapter 2. There's no brokenness. There's just like this shalom, this peace and harmony. And he, he makes Adam, and he says, he, he Adam's supposed to name the animals, and he's naming all the animals, and he looks around, and he says, God says, oh, this isn't it. Like, this isn't enough. You need a helper. You need a helpmate, a person to be in relationship with you, um, and, and then centers in the world later. And so, you know, it's cool that I think we're, we're designed to need other people, and that's not always codependent. 
that it's important to be dependent. We need our parents. We need them to take care of us. We need Maslow's hierarchy of needs met. But there becomes a, a point in relationships where it crosses the line from dependent to codependent, and we're both depending on each other. And now my worth and value is tied into what you think about me, you know, what your needs and wants are, and that's when it gets extremely toxic. So I love that you, if we have a healthy person and all the cards are on the table and we're together working on healing our family wounds, that's great. But with one of us is trying to heal family wounds and we don't even know we're doing that. And the other person is, you know, just trying to live their best life. It gets really messy, you know, and then the codependency and trauma bond starts happening. So I think that was a yeah. great message that you said that it is okay for you to be in relationship with other people and, and for that marriage or that coupleship or whatever to heal, heal those traumas. However, it's not their primary role. And if you're not being explicit about it, it gets really messy quick. Yes. Love is about um, being able to become more of yourself and um, dependency is about becoming more each of each other yeah. and losing yourself. Yeah, it's the um, Jerry Maguire, you know, you complete me kind of mentality. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, I'm not I'm not myself or I'm not fully identified unless I'm in a couple ship. And it's like, oh, that's, that's going to be messy. Yes. Or, or finding your soulmate. Yeah make sure it's not a trauma bond and um and so to to come back to codependency so that was the dependency what i was describing and what is the codependency uh that is when you need the other person to be dependent back on you yeah yes so a profile would look like and especially with a children of addicts, for instance, or of, of narcissistic parents who were forced basically to be focused on their parents' needs um, and had to self-sacrifice. So the message they received as a child, because they were parentified, parentified means that they had to take on the role of a parent to, um, to take care of them sometimes literally, or, you know, cooking dinner, etc., or uh, emotionally to be there for them. Or, you know, some parents who talk about the problems with their husband or the, the, uh, with a child. Well, child cannot handle these, this responsibility. So the message that this child receives is you are loved as long as you provide. Mm -hmm. Because the moment that these children had needs of their own. They just wanted to play outside or they just wanted to, you know, be playful or whatever, not be responsible at a young age, which they're not able to actually. As soon as that happened, the parent wasn't happy with them. Right. Especially narcissistic parents. Mm -hmm. And the, the addictive, addicted parent wasn't able to, to be happy with that either. So they received the message, we don't like you if you are yourself your authentic self slash we don't like you when you are in need yep. so the child grows up that uh, believing that people will reject them as soon as they have needs of their own yep. and at the same time they have learned i will love you when you self-sacrifice for me so they become dependent on the other person's validation and they will make sure that the, unconsciously often they will make sure that the other person will remain dependent on them. So they might choose a, 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 a addict, for instance, or someone who needs, who doesn't take 
care is not in control of their life mm-hmm. and they will enable that person or they will choose a partner that is struggles with autonomy wants to become more autonomous but they won't be able they don't have the inner safety to allow their partner to become a strong partner because they fear that as soon as their partner won't need them anymore they're out yep yeah, it's so good. Yeah, a lot of attachment work there, right? Um, just that mm-hmm. that I need, you know, and then you don't meet my need. And so how do I get my needs met? And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier is that, you know, when we find ourselves winding up in these same relationships or with these same bosses or in these same, you know, conflicts, learning to have that insight and to say, okay, it's, it's not necessarily my fault. We don't want to label it as in that negative way, but what am I doing to contribute to the problem? What am I not seeing you know, what do I think that I need um, in these situations? And and a lot of times you get in therapy, you get into work and you realize, oh, man, I do feed off of helping people or I do feed off on people needing me or, or whatever the thing is. And um, and have and moralizing that. Right. Um, you know, looking at that negatively and going, oh, I'm a good or bad person if I don't help. I was just working with a client this morning on that same thing of just well, what's wrong with you saying, I don't want to do this? You know, what's wrong with you saying, I don't like drinking that in the morning or what's wrong with you saying, I don't want to go to that restaurant. And sometimes it's, it's as simple as that, like never picking the place you want to eat and always letting your spouse do it out of a sense of like, I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm giving. And then later you blow up and go, I never get to eat where I want to. And it's like, well, (laughs) you did that out of kindness 20 times in a row. And now we're blowing up. Was it really out of kindness? And Clint, and how that then this is the interesting part, and how has that developed? Oh, yeah. Why does this person struggle to say what they would actually want? Yeah, mm-hmm. they've been doing it their whole life and they don't even realize it. Yeah, and how come? So, the reason often is because they, um, as a child, were guilted when they asserted themselves, when their parent felt rejected. For instance, mm-hmm. I'm a not, a not a good enough mother. You want something else. You're not appreciating this. So they were guilted. So they were, they as adults, they feel forced into doing things that they don't want to because otherwise they project their parent onto that other person. Yep. Otherwise they will reject me. They will be, I will be guilty. I will be, a, I feel, often they have developed a self-image of that they're selfish because that was what their parent communicated there. Uh, emotionally mature parent communicated to them or they have um, needed to become the, the fixer the helper as as uh, their identity their role self yeah definitely mm-hmm. have you seen the thing on uh, like selfhood versus selfishness versus selflessness no so um so in christian circles a lot I, at least i talk about it this way we we talk about jesus as if he was selfless you know, he was sacrificial. He, he died for us. He made these, these sacrifices. And so then we, what we do is we project onto ourselves. Then we have to do that in every scenario at every time to be like Jesus, we must die to ourselves, sacrifice ourselves. And that is selfless. And that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I push back and say that Jesus had selfhood. He knew who mm-hmm. he was. He knew his value. He knew how much God loved him and his identity. So then he was able to choose self-sacrifice in a way that was good for not only him and the world, but for everybody. And um, a lot of times what we do is we we say, I don't matter. And that's self, selflessness. And really a healthy person goes, no, I do matter. And I'm, it says Jesus gave up his life. No one took it. 
And a lot of times I think we, in unhealthy ways, we say, oh, I'm being selfless, but we're getting our thing, our lives taken. You know, people are saying, I want this. And we go, oh, well, then I automatically have to give it to you because you want it. I don't really want to, but I'm going to out of sacrifice. And it's like, well, Jesus died because he wanted to, not because he was forced to. And so mm-hmm. that's selfhood. And then you have selfless selfhood and um, what was the other one? Uh, selflessness. Oh, selfishness, right? It's just, it's all about me. It's, it's all what I want. And, mm-hmm. and we have that movement now of like, you do you. And we have these mm-hmm. po- podcasters and posters who's like, you do what's best for you. You don't worry about anybody else. It doesn't matter how they feel. You know, you've been traumatized your whole life. So you, you just focus on you. And it's like, well, that's not healthy either. It's this middle ground of where I matter and you matter. Now let's have this negotiation and relationship on, on how we're going to get our needs met. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, so you're describing dependency versus interdependency versus uh, independence. Yeah, it's the same words. It's just, you know, yes. yeah, self, yeah. selfishness, selflessness, exactly. and selfhoods in the middle. And that's yes. that interdependency. I, abs- I absolutely agree. I posted once on um, selfless is selfish mm-hmm. because there's no such thing as self-sacrifice. I, I believe I'm, I'm exaggerating. Perhaps it's the fear of otherwise being called selfish. Yeah. Well, we would, we would say that from a theological perspective is that without the Holy spirit, without God, um, loving through you that really no love is, is completely altruistic. You know, you have a motive mm-hmm. to get something out of it, but, but Jesus loved in a way or gives us the ability to love in a way that is selfless, but it's really selfhood. It's really, it's interdependence. It's valuing yourself enough and the relationship enough to give up yourself for the other person. Yeah. I think yeah. It's, it's a beautiful way of saying it. And, well, and for me, right. integrating the psychology and the theology together. So, mm-hmm. um, and I believe, I believe the people who developed uh, a sense of self, they automatically know very well how to balance their own needs and to be able to give, Yeah, but out of a place of giving that is genuine and when we haven't developed this sense of self properly, we will be giving out of fear. And that is not genuine. Nope. So, um, which means it's not always, safe, right? It's not safe. Yes. It's out of, yeah. And it will cause resentment. So I often tell people, you need to not forget that normally mature people, when you set a boundary, they will appreciate it. And normally, when you will say yes, when you feel no towards a mature person, they won't feel comfortable when you are overstepping your boundaries. Right. An immature person, however, will struggle to understand that you are, you know, overstepping your boundaries. So they won't care about that. They need you to overstep your boundaries for them to not feel abandoned or insulted. Yeah. So that's that's the difference. I mean, it's terrible, but it's good. You're right. Like with my friends, if I, if, you know, if let's say we had dinner, right. And I call my friend Tyler and and we're supposed to have dinner. This happened a couple of weeks ago. And my wife's like, I just can't do it. You know, we're going to see y'all tomorrow, but you know, I know I committed to it, but I'm really my mental health. I need a break, whatever. We need friends that'll be like, absolutely. You know, our relationship isn't based on this one moment or this one night. It's based on, you know, years and months of reciprocation and love. And so you do what's best for you in this moment. That's not selfish. That's not saying I don't care about you. And we need those people in our lives who go, hey, I'm setting this boundary or I'm setting this expectation. And 
yeah, do what's good for you, you know? Now, if that becomes a pattern where the person only ever cancels and only ever doesn't show up, then there needs to be a different conversation because that's not actually taking us all into consideration. But you're right. A healthy person's response will be, I totally understand. You can't come for Christmas this year. That's not what's best for you and your kids. Well, I love you anyway. And we're still family and we'll figure out a way to connect and, and do something different. I'm disappointed. Maybe I don't like it. Maybe I do wish that you could do that. But I trust you and I know that, you know, you're going to do what's best for all of us. And, so, and I can only enjoy and I can only enjoy our company as long as as you are generally feeling and, and, and ready for it. Yeah, I don't want you to show up at my house only doing it because, you know, I'm going to be exactly. frustrated or resentful if you don't. And and I yes. know you see this as much as I do coming into the Christmas holidays. That's most of how everybody interacts. <laughs> I'm all, I don't want to do this. I didn't want to go, but I did anyway. And then it was a dumpster fire and nobody got anything out of it. And now we're all just frustrated and wondering why the holidays were stressful and now I'm going back to work on January and I'm like, ugh. Mm. can you, okay. I don't, I know we got a few minutes. So, uh, can you tell me about mother wounds specifically? So, and I'm going to go ahead and preface this cause y'all know I love prefaces. There are plenty of father wounds out there, right there. Mm -hmm. There, and we can talk about that. I want to have you back cause I'm loving our conversation and I want like more time with you if you'll do it at some point. Yeah, um, but you. you know, there's father wounds that are out there and there's a lot of research and obviously a lot of, um, our culture in the last couple of years is pointing to, you know, unhealthy men, the me too movement, lots of abuses that have happened. And so I'm, I'm prefacing, there's a lot of stuff that unhealthy fathers have done and we can do podcasts on that. I feel like there are a lot, there's a lot of focus on unhealthy men and how they've hurt the culture and patriarchy and all that kind of stuff. And it's all important and we should talk about it and we will, but can you talk about mother wounds, especially, um, and what you see in that world and that, um, how that's affecting people? Yeah. So the mother wound, the way I see the mother wound, perhaps officially it means something else. But what I'm emphasizing with the mother wound is when a mom has a child, but still has her own abandonment wound, for instance, or a mother wound. And so this mother doesn't feel unconditionally accepted. She doesn't feel worthy or she feels that no one takes care of her is af afraid that she will be a she already feels that people will abandon her so now she has a child and uh carries this wound she is not aware of unconsciously these moms believe that their child owe them they they always need to be there for them or they become the extension of the mom mm -hmm. okay so so in both cases the child is not seen for who they are. They are seen as, this sounds a little bit disrespectful, but it, in the end, it's a neat gratifying object for the mom who's not aware that she's still a child herself yep. and unconsciously uses her child to feel worthy, to feel cared for. So this mom will struggle to allow her child to separate and individuate. This is the mom who will hold her child while, while the child is coming for safety and the mom is really happy that the child's coming and then the child wants to go out and play again, right? The child comes for safety and then the child wants to become autonomous. This is the mom who will struggle to let her child go mm -hmm. or will start criticizing their friends, etc. in order for the child to stay more with mom. So they won't, so a mother, so what happens is the child will struggle to 
develop their own sense of self. They want to uh, feel unconditionally accepted in the mm -hmm. case of a more perhaps narcissistic or I'll call it ego wounded mom. And as a result, they grow up feeling that they are not worthy for who they are. They are liked for what they do, not for who they are. So for how they behave mm -hmm. or what they hide, not for who they are. Yeah. So they grow up with a mask. They grow up being dependent. They grow up uh, feeling superior. They And then they will use their child to meet their unmet needs. And then that goes from generation to generation. Yeah. Do you see that um, that mother wound, especially in the narcissistic mother, that um, a lot of times that person has a different persona to everybody else than they do to that child? Meaning, uh, you know, the child is like, hold on, we're around people and now you're acting like this. But when we're one on one, you act totally different. Mm -hmm. Is that a typical symptom? Yes, yes. Uh, outside, they can be very nice and then. Um, it's very important what people think of them. And then behind closed doors, it's different. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, especially with the, with the, the covert narcissistic mom, that's very, very tricky Yeah. because that's the, the innocent type, um, who will, you know, start crying instead, you know, crying, guilting you, shaming you for how dare you have needs and you're not praising me and you're not grateful. So yeah. And then they, yeah. and then they switch to, well, I guess I'm just the most, the worst mother in the world, or I guess I'm just the worst father in the world. That Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's these polarized, I'm either the best ever and how dare you, or I guess I'm just, you know, the apologies are all these, I guess I've just done guess, everything terrible and you know, I'm yes. just awful. And, and so yes, yes. if you're listening to this and you kind of say some of those things internally or externally, no one's trying to shame you. Right. What I think uh, Dr. Kernia would, would say the same thing as I and I'll let you. But, you know, we're pointing these things out for us to have awareness into our own trauma. And so what we understand is that mothers that w are wounded do these things because they're wounded. It's just that it's a cycle. It's generation after generation. And and so placing the blame on someone or trying to find fault is is not that helpful. The goal is that if you hear this and you go, Oh, I do that sometimes, or that's, that's, that is kind of how I sound. It's to, to realize that you have stuff that you're trying to deal with and that you're probably not even conscious or intentionally doing it, but there are patterns that are going on. And if you've heard a, a child come to you and say, Hey mom, every time I try to share my feelings, you reject me or you, you justify or you minimize my feelings. Know that that's a coping skill for you. That's a coping mechanism for you and your pain. And so you might need to go and talk to someone about, you know, the feelings of why is it that when my daughter or my son is vulnerable, that it makes me so upset and what's exactly. that bringing up for me? And I think, is that what you see a lot of? Yeah. Thank you for highlighting this. I think this is so important when you identify with doing that, when you, you know, guilt trip your child or someone, often this is because it, you are not able to process what is happening. It's too much. It feels like an attack. It feels as if your child is slapping you in the face. That's, yeah. It's it literally that's that's how it feels. You feel attacked and and betrayed, uh, insulted, betrayed. Great word, betrayed. So of course you would respond in such a way if you weren't reflecting on what is happening. You just hit back. Yep. 
The problem is, first of all, this child is not hitting you. It's your wound being triggered. And that is very, very painful. But then we need to find out, to figure out how can we regulate ourselves in order to not hit back something that is loving. Yeah, and something that is seeking safety, right? Something that's coming to you to get validation and to get nurturing and to get empathy. And because you don't have that internally for yourself, you don't know how to give it. Yeah. And also I'm thinking now we're talking on the subject that I can imagine that there often can be intergenerational resentment going on. Why should I have to process my emotions? And well, well, why can you have a childhood, a carefree childhood when I was treated this way? Now it's my turn. Now I want the praise. Now I want the respect. Now I want the control. Now Mm -hmm. I want you to be my puppet. Yeah. It's not fair. Yeah. And it's not fair. You know, that's the truth of it. It is right? not fair. Yeah, the two truths yes. can happen at the same time. It cannot be fair exactly. for you as a parent that your childhood yeah. sucked and that you got abused. And yet at the yes. same time, it's not your kid's fault and it's not their responsibility to heal you. Yes, but you do have the power to break this generational cycle. Yeah. And to heal your, not only your child, to heal your inner child. Yeah, definitely. And it takes work and, and it takes being aware of it and taking responsibility for it. And, uh, and again, to go back to what we talked about earlier, sometimes taking responsibility leaves, leads to levels of shame that we just can't tolerate in the moment. Mm-hmm. And so if because we lack their inner safety. Yeah. And so if we're, if we're a child, what would be some advice you would give to an adult or a, a teen or, you know, young adult who, who's like, man, yeah, my mom's just like this. What would be advice, um, you would give them to not continue to be slapped in the face? You mean by, what do you mean, for the mom or for the child? For the child. So we, we've talked about the mom and empathize with them and try to connect yeah. with them a little bit. But for the for the adult person who's who's realizing, realizing, man, I have a mother wound. My mom is narcissistic or my mom is abusive. Or, and, and now they realize, oh, that's not really about me. That's about their own wounds. Yes. I, I don't want it to turn into codependency right now. It's there. Now I need to just be extra nice because my poor mother's wounded. Mm. What would you advise them to to do? How do they set yeah. boundaries and stay loving, but also stay safe? Great question. So what does the adult child do? Um, first of all, I identify this, identify what the, um, I think the biggest mistake that people make and why they're so disappointed and have issues with their parents is because they take them seriously. As in, they see them as a mature adult with abilities. Yep. Figure out first, what are their abilities? What are they capable of? What are they capable of? So if you're dealing with a parent that leaves you feeling, you know, guilty, that is not healthy. That is an immature. When we feel guilty often by someone, probably we're dealing with an immature person who is not able to deal with responsibility and process their own emotions. So we need to identify first, what is their emotional age? What is their, what is their ability, the capacity they have? to have realistic expectations. As soon as we realize, okay, this is a a person that doesn't have the inner safety to act normally to us as an adult, they will guilt us, okay? That is their way they they are coping. Then we need to um, be able to not take that personally and to set boundaries in in a respectful way. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think uh, the nuance here is you get to have feelings and be hurt and grieve 
I think what you're saying by taking it personally is then self-shaming yourself as if it's your fault or there's something you should or could do about it. Is that right? Yeah. 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 I think a lot of times when we, uh, I know I, I sometimes in my own therapy, whenever I hear, well, don't take it personally. It's like, oh, well, I shouldn't have any feelings. You know, that tends mm. to be my label. And so, you know, if you're hearing, don't take it personally, whether it's a spouse, a husband, a wife, you know, a, a boss or whatever, that doesn't mean you don't get to have feelings, but it means depersonalizing that their, un, their toxic responses have nothing to do with you. Yes. So their guilty doesn't mean that you're selfish. Yeah. It means that they struggle to, um, to deal with their own dis feelings of disappointment, like a mature person is able to do. Yep. Yep. That's good. Um, any closing remarks, comments on this? I mean, this was, I could talk about all these with you for like six hours, so I need to schedule like a two hour podcast cause this is so good. Um, yeah. Any closing thoughts or remarks? Yes, I was thinking with the holidays coming, yeah. family is really important. And of course, if you have an unsafe family, we, you need to protect yourself always. And you have friends and other people that are loving to you. But if you choose to have a relationship with your parents and they are emotionally immature, you know, you struggle with them. Perhaps you can, um, if you're able to um, accept what they're not have shown, they have not been able to give to you, probably they won't ever be able to give to you. And, and, and then accept that, take that loss and focus on what they are able to do. And perhaps you will have a more, uh, superficial relationship, but it can be a relationship based on the maturity level they have. And then you can still enjoy each other. Yeah, that's super good. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. that that comes with your own maturity and your own self-actualization. And, and if you yes. have people in your life that know you know your heart, know your intentions and are a good emotional support, then you're not so reliant on your parents' affirmations, your parents pleasing, your, your, you know, making your parents proud. It can be disappointing still, right? It's going to bring up feelings of, oh man, it's not supposed to be this way. I wish that it could be different. Um, but the less outside support you have, the more you need that. And the more outside support you have, the less you need it. And I think, like you said, you can, you can enjoy the relationship for what it is, um, and respect them and they can respect you and yet, you know, not be disappointed because you're always kind of raising your expectations or, or again, I would say in our social media world, measuring it against other people, right? Looking at everybody else's photos and going, Oh man, I wish I had a family gathering like that. When you don't know that, you know, that's a, a blip in the week that they had and their intimacy and all that stuff. So what is it? Comparison mm -hmm. is the thief of joy, right? It's, you know, just figure out what you got going on and what's, what's true in your life and, and uh, measuring it against other people, whether it's trauma or whether it's their family don't, doesn't help very much. Well, look, I'm so thankful for yeah. your time. Um, I really will, would love Thank to have you, too, you have you back on and, and cover some other things that, that you cover really well. Um, uh, thanks for listening, guys. Um, what, where can they, what's your Instagram handle? Remind me again. Yes. Psychologist Stephanie, you can find me. Yeah, I'll put it in the, I'll put it in the, in the section in the YouTube and in, on iTunes and stuff. Um, but y'all look oh, her stuff Facebook up. Yeah, well. Facebook. She has great videos, great content. Um, follow her if you want some more information. God bless you and have a good day.